Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. In this week's Big Tech Show, we talk to the Dublin startup that wants to help big companies stop making stupid, embarrassing mistakes with their AI, such as telling people to eat rocks as part of a healthy diet. Basic definition of hallucination is say, stating something very confidently, but in fact, it's factually incorrect. This AI technology is very good at stating something very confident, mimicking human level confidence, but then they could be factually incorrect. The Big Tech Show, available on all podcast platforms. You're listening to the best of the Indo-Daily. This podcast contains graphic details and violent scenes. I walked into a room with this guy, never heard of him, never met him in my life. And just before I met him, somebody said to me, whatever you do, don't call him Whitey. Because he's Jim and he doesn't like Whitey. And I remember being in the basement with two boys who I knew were killers. Why were they down there? They had no reason to be there. They'd never been there before. And nobody else was there. But I remember a wave of paranoia coming over me. And later on, when I heard he'd killed people in a basement and buried them, I mean, I still wonder, was that the same basement? Did I have bodies buried under my feet? Today on the Indo-Daily, terrorism, murder and gangsters. The life of a provisional IRA gunrunner. I was exhausted. I hadn't slept. We had a hurricane and I was... I was the worst for wear, so I was sleeping and I got woken up and said we were being boarded. The Irish Navy were behind the Skellig Rocks where radar from the Marita and could not detect them. So we were boarded by the Irish Navy and the guards and we were arrested. John Crawley swapped the United States Marine Corps for the provisional IRA. In his new book, The Yank, Crawley describes how Martin McGuinness sent him to get guns for the provost in Boston, where he partnered with the US's most notorious gangster, Whitey Bulger. John Crowley, can you tell me your background? Well, I was born uh, to Irish, Irish immigrant parents in New York in 1957. We moved to Chicago when I was about two. My father was from County Roscommon. My mother's from County Kerry. My father spent four years in the U.S. Air Force to get a bit of technical training and also to accelerate getting American citizenship at the time. Was there a particular Republican background within the family? No particular Republican background. My father would have been uh, Fianna Fáil. My mother would have been Fine Gael. My granduncle shot dead the last RAC man of the town war in Castlery on the 11th of July, 1921, and later joined the guards. Uh, but he would have been a devil era supporter. But um, like a lot of people, you know, I, I had family who were in the IRA and I had family who were in the British Army. So, no, I never heard any Republican propaganda at home or my, my Republican beliefs came from my my own study, my my reading of history and uh, framed within my own belief systems. Probably having grown up in, in the United States under the American Republic, I had a very strong Republican ethos. And was there always a plan in, in your own head to, to join the provisional IRA? Well, I would have joined when I was uh, about 18, but, you know, they don't call it a secret army for nothing. And I didn't know anybody in it. So... I decided to go back and get professional military training and come back. But it, it wasn't with a view to, you know, this uh, messianical view that I was going to somehow come back and, you know, change things for the better. I mean, I really believed that the IRA was this professional guerrilla organization and that I, I was hearing about very often from the Brits. And uh, I didn't particularly think that the IRA needed my help, but uh, 
I was going to enhance my own professional development and test my commitment by going away for four years and see was I still, you know, genuinely committed to that path. And I was, and I came home and I joined it. And your experience in the United States Marine Corps, how would you evaluate that now? It was tough. I was in uh, the special operations uh, group called Recon. It's the Special Forces of the Marines. I became an instructor. Very tough training, very professional. It was certainly uh, an interesting experience. And I probably would have made it a career, except I was very keen to come home to Ireland. I always felt more Irish than American, and I always felt my loyalties laid primarily with Ireland. So after the Marines, how did you actually join, as you say, the the secret army that was the provisional IRA? Well, it was a bit of a convoluted process, but eventually I got work with a fellow that I knew had been a prisoner in Port Leash. And I I knew he had resigned from the IRA, and uh, he rapidly guessed my intention from my line of questioning and my interest. He actually advised me against it. He, I remember him actually telling me at the time that he didn't believe that the IRA leadership in Belfast or Derry could be trusted. But I put that down to the excuse of a man who wanted to justify leaving the struggle. And I didn't, uh, you know, it didn't really take that on board. But eventually I persisted and um, uh, one day a Tyrone man approached me and uh, asked was I interested. And they checked out my family history. Like, it, it didn't just waltz in there. It took a while, a bit of checking out and stuff. I mean, naturally, they'd have been suspicious about why this guy would have come out of thin air who had a lot of other options in life and get involved in that. But um, eventually, I, 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 uh, I got the green book and um, I was sworn in. And what were the, the intentions then for the IRA f- for you, given, given your background and your experience? Well, I rapidly found out that they, they weren't the highly professional organization that I had been led to believe. Uh, very few people had professional military training, and um, that didn't surprise me. But what really surprised me was the complete lack of interest at a leadership level at anything that I could offer in the source of knowledge resources. And uh, when it eventually came that I was told to go to the States, I remember Martin McGinnis, uh, you know, saying to me, basically that his only interest in me was my accent, that my accent wouldn't be notable going into gun stores in America to buy Armalites. He had, didn't seem to have any interest whatsoever in any of my training. I, you know, I had been in a, a special forces unit, the Marines, and I had been an instructor. So that was quite a surprise to me. Although men on the ground, the active service men, they, they were very keen, very keen to learn things, very keen to get tactics, techniques, and procedures that would enhance their development and their effectiveness as a guerrilla army. The Green Book, of course, is the is the instruction manual for the for the provisional IRA, and well, you would have had views on how that that kind of training could be updated, basically. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the Green Book isn't a training manual per se, mm-hmm. but um, you know, I, I did see, I, I saw major flaws and weaknesses, and uh, the frustrating thing was they were so easily sorted sending me to the States because I had an American accent. I actually refused to go to the States. I mean, I said I didn't want to go because I, I said, if you want some guy with an American accent, you've got countless people over there you can use. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But no, you got to go. That was it. So that was the choice I had. I suppose if, if I wanted to remain in the organization, I had to, to to take that mission on board. Otherwise, I'd have to resign and I didn't want to resign. So that was it. Orders were orders. And how did you get to meet with Martin McGuinness? Well, he kind of met me. Uh, he must have heard about me. And uh, 
I was called to a meeting one time in um, John Joe McGurl's pub in Ballinamore County, Leitrim. And uh, he met me there. And I was, of course, I was uh, starstruck, so to speak. I'd, I'd heard so much about him and how he was, you know, I remember hearing a British military officer saying that Martin McGuinness was our finest military thinker and that he could have been trained by by their uh, academy at Sandhurst. So I, I, obviously, I mean, I was clearly impressed with all this, you know. But uh, as time went on, uh, I discovered that um, the level of military knowledge and ability uh, that I believe was there, uh, well, I found no evidence that it was there, you know. Yeah. At, at what point was the notorious criminal Whitey Bulger mentioned as a, as a contact uh, for the procurement of arms? Well, I have to make something very clear because um, I think there's misconception there that, you know, I, I've read in a few reports that, you know, Martin McGinnis sent me over to Whitey Bulger. Martin McGinnis did not send me to Whitey Bulger. What, Martin McGinnis didn't know Whitey Bulger, never met him, never heard of him, and neither did I. I was sent to the, to the United States to set up uh, a new arms network because of arrests and other problems over there. And uh, I was sent to Boston and I was given a half a $5 note cut in an erratic manner. And I was told my contact would have the other half in Boston. So I met um, an Irish supporter of the IRA over there. He had the other half of the note. So he knew that I was the person sent. And uh, I discussed what we were trying to do and what we were trying to set up and that we needed people with resources and ability to provide us with false ID and weapons if possible. And that is illegal activity. And it would you know, it follows that somebody willing to break the law would have to be able to do that. So he put me in touch with Jim Bolger. Now, when I first met Jim Bolger, you know, looking back at it now in hindsight with the movies about him and the books about him and the endless stuff about him. At that time, I'd never heard of him. I didn't know who he was. I mean, I understood that he was involved in some sort of criminal activity, although I didn't know what that was. Uh, but he was clearly an intelligent, high-level guy, and you know, I rapidly deduced well, he wasn't snatching handbags up off ground. He was told by people there because I mean, I know nothing about organized crime, and that, 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 and I didn't want to know, but I, I had to complete this mission. So, needs must from the devil drives. So sometimes you have to work with people you wouldn't be around in a social environment, you know. Yeah, but. Uh, I mean, you were from an American background. You weren't uh, an innocent abroad from Ireland. Are, are you seriously trying to tell us that you, you, you had no idea who Whitey Bulger was as you were dealing with, with this man? He was able to procure arms and he had yeah. all sorts of contacts can, in terms of, of drug dealing uh, routes and trafficking routes and so on? I can assure you, how the hell would I have known who Jim Bulger was? I wasn't from Boston. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd never heard of this guy. And you mentioned drug dealing. I mean, all, all I know about, you know, all Whitey talked about was how he kept drugs out of Boston. He never mentioned drug dealing. Had they mentioned drug dealing, we wouldn't have gone near these guys. You see, um, Fionnan, there was no internet then. There was no Facebook. All I could go by was what I saw with my own eyes or what I was told. I walked into a room with this guy, never heard of him, never met him in my life. I came, I, I was, good thing I was told not to call him Whitey to his face because People kept calling him Whitey. And just before I met him, somebody said to me, whatever you do, don't call him Whitey because he's Jim and he doesn't like Whitey. So I, I was going to go in there and say, hi, Whitey, you know. So it's a good thing I was I was boxed off. 
And even some of his his associates. I mean, it's been claimed over the years that that part of the gun running operation was was financed and facilitated by by Joe Murray, who was a major drug dealer in the in in the Boston area. That the 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 Valhalla, the ship that was ultimately used, that 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 was one that was procured from 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 that network as well. Well, they certainly didn't tell us that. Joe Murray gave me the impression that he had money, but and all he talked about was bank robberies and armored car stickups, which the Charleston men were were very uh, no, noted for at the time. Uh, they never mentioned drugs or talked about drugs, except to be anti-drug. And what about your interaction with, with Whitey Bulger? We were taking up a lot of time and resources from his, his organization that wasn't benefiting him. And it was there was always a concern of mine that at some stage he would want to end this. And it was. And I remember being in the basement with two boys who I knew were killers because I'd heard stories by this time from some of the men around them that these guys were serious, you know, serious criminals. Like, why were they down there? They had no reason to be there. They'd never been there before. And nobody else was there. But I remember a wave of paranoia coming over me. And later on, later on, when I heard he killed people in a basement and buried them, I mean, I still wonder, was that the same basement? When I was doing the work I was doing on the weapons, did I have bodies buried under my feet? And why was he interested in helping the IRA then? I don't really know. He had this notional thing that a lot of Irish Americans have. Um, so the, the the most famous, I suppose, gun shipment probably during the the course of the troubles was the the Valhalla and and Marita Ann incident. And and you were at the heart of that. Tell us what 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 you, your role was there. Um, I wasn't supposed to be on the boat. That was never part of the plan. I got a very unusual message from home one day, being told to call home at a certain time, uh, at a certain uh, payphone in Ireland, which was very unusual. And uh, I phoned it, and I was told, I didn't recognize the voice at the other end, and I was told, come home now with everything you got, and you be on the boat. It was very stark, you be on the boat. And it didn't make any sense because that wasn't part of the plan. We were working on bigger things down the road, and it clearly we were informed on. So you you basically traveled out from from Massachusetts on what was a, a relatively small boat, uh, a fairly yes, turb- yes. turbulent crossing across the the Atlantic. Oh, we hit a hurricane, and we had a I don't know how we got through it. We were it's just miraculous that we got through that. I mean, the boat was was just absolutely shattered after it i'm not a sailor i'm not i'm not a seafarer i wouldn't have a lot of experience of these things and i remember there was a day when the sea was like glass i mean i never saw calmer water in my life you could have been a, a fishing pond and i remember the captain uh, anderson he was monitoring a hurricane coming up the gulf coast and he was quite worried and he says you know this is a sign that things to come might be good but when the hurricane hit it was horrendous. I couldn't imagine us getting out of it. And um, and I was at the wheel in the middle of the night, cold, dark water of the North Atlantic, trying to swamp us every moment, desperately trying to steer through the waves. My watch ended, and that saved our lives because, because the Captain Anderson, who had 25 years' experience fishing the North Atlantic, and told me that in 25 years the North Atlantic is the worst storm he had seen. He was on the wheel. I went into a bunkhouse. Uh, laid down. Of course, nobody could sleep. The boat was rearing violently. And then all of a sudden, there was like a car collision. I was thrown violently forward. And we had hit this massive wave. 
I came out, out of the bunkhouse and saw Captain Anderson desperately on his knees, desperately holding onto the wheel, blood gushing from his head. The windows are blown in. The, the water is gushing around my ankles and a fire is coming up in the engine room where the guns are stored because of a short circuit from the, from the seawater. So at this moment, I, I just think, well, that's it. We're doomed. The next, next wave will finish us and straight to the bottom of the Atlantic. So I said to the captain, I said to Anderson, I said, should we put on the survival suits? Uh, he was, he, uh, thankfully, he was lucid and all because he was bleeding like a stuck pig. But, you know, it was a head wound and it, it was w- worse than it looked. And he said, uh, I'll never forget it. He said, go ahead, put it on if you want to. He says, we're in the middle of the ocean. Nobody knows we're here. We have no communications. Put it on if you want to, but it's going to take you eight hours longer to die. And none of us put them on. But uh, gradually, uh, somehow, the storm abated and we, we were able to, you know, we met the Marinan and the Porcupine Basin about 200 miles off the West Coast. I didn't know... Uh, who was coming to meet us. I didn't know the Marita Ann. I didn't know anybody on the Marita Ann. We were just given coordinates uh, to be at at a certain time and place. And we were there and they were there and we transferred the stuff across. And then what happens? I was exhausted. I hadn't slept. We had a hurricane and it was, I was the worst for wear. So I was sleeping and then I got woken up and said we were being boarded. So we were boarded by the Irish Navy and the guards and we were arrested. And, uh, the Marine Anne was towed into uh, Cork and we were put on a, an Irish Navy ship and brought into the Bridewell, uh, interrogated and charged. Um, and then I got 10 years for that. Yeah, Martin Ferris, of course, the, the, the future Sinn Féin TD being the, being the skipper on the Marine Anne on that occasion. Well, he wasn't the skipper. The skipper was Mike Brown. He owned the Marine Anne, but Martin would have been the IRA officer in, in command of the operation on the Irish end. And effectively, it, it, it was an informer uh, at the Irish end who Yes, who, it was. It was. I mean, and I was told even before I went to the States that only a handful of men in Ireland knew this. So if things went wrong, it would be down to me because I had trusted the wrong person or I had made a mistake. But the thing is, the Irish Navy were behind the Skellic Rocks uh, where radar from the Marita Anne could not detect, detect them on our way to Kenmare Bay. Now, neither me nor anyone on the American end knew where we were going in Ireland. For all I knew, we could have been going to Donegal, Galway, Waterford. I had no idea we were going to Kenmare Bay. But the Irish Navy knew we were going to Kenmare Bay, and I know I didn't tell them. The Valhalla turns around and heads back. Uh, one of your the people you were working with there, John McIntyre, he, he ends up dead a, a few months later. Yeah, unfortunately, I mean, when it came time to transfer the weapons between the boats, um, he he took them over in a punt, you know, back and forth because uh, we weren't able to, to tie up because of heavy seas. His role was invaluable. So I was very sorry to hear when he got back. I don't have any first hand knowledge of what he did, but it's my belief that when he got back, he was drink driving, was stopped and he blurted out his involvement, uh, I believe that he was scared of Whitey Bulger. He wanted to get away from Whitey Bulger's circle and his influence. It's my feeling that he was shit scared of Whitey Bulger and wanted away and uh, started uh, talking. Well, because of Whitey Bulger's contacts over there, Whitey Bulger would have found out about John's statement almost as soon as the words were out of his mouth. So it's my understanding he was lured to a basement in South Boston I suspect the same basement where I had been. And he was uh, apparently strangled with a rope. The rope was too thick. 
he was asked by Whitey, do you want one in the head? And he pathetically said, yes, please. And Whitey shot him in the back of the head and then several times in the face. And then Steve Flemmy pulled his teeth out and uh, crushed them because at the time there was no DNA. And then they buried him. I don't think his body was found for, uh, I don't know how many years after. So it was terrible. And I was very sorry to hear that. And, uh, you know, there was no need for it. But, you know, this is the type of thing these guys were at. But yet this was the, the kind of person who the IRA was happy to do business with. Yeah, well, the IRA didn't know, you see. Mm. People can understand if they want or not, or they can believe the worst about the IRA, which I know some people will believe mm-hmm. the worst, no matter what we say. But if anybody thinks that the IRA would have worked with a guy that was murdering women, mm-hmm. that was murdering people, pulling their teeth out. I mean, if when you met this guy, he came across as intelligent, well-spoken, professional. I mean, we, we didn't know the mercurial psychopath we were working now. When I read some of the stuff this guy was at, you know, it makes my skin crawl. And, you know, I wouldn't have gone near this guy if I'd have known what he was at. But yet, at the same time, if I can put it to you, the provisional IRA, if I can name but a few atrocities, Birmingham, Guildford, Enniskillen, Shankill Road, uh, Warrington, sectarian murders uh, over the course of, of 35 years, uh, murders of members of, of the Irish police force, the, the Garda Síochána, murders of the, the uh, killings of, of the members of the Irish defence forces uh, as, as well. So is it really, I mean, how, how do you how do you reckon, turn around and say, oh, well, this person was bad, but what these guys over here in the IRA were doing was okay? Well, I, I, I don't. I can only. I can only reconcile what I was involved in. I mean, I wasn't involved in, in in any of those things you've mentioned. I mean, what I wanted to do was professionalize uh, uh, an organization fighting for the full freedom and independence of Ireland, and I wanted to wage wage war on the British government who was claiming jurisdiction in this country. Many bad things happened. Now, I'm, I wasn't involved in anything you, you mentioned. I mean, it, you know, life life is complicated. People expect me to answer for things that I had no involvement in, and I was trying with the highest ideals and a great risk to myself to improve our ability to resist the British occupation of this country and to challenge British jurisdiction in Ireland. I mean, I I have no apologies to make for my involvement as an IRA volunteer. I have no regrets except that we did not achieve the 32-county republic that we fought for. And are are you in any way remorseful, so... No, Absolute, at, at, uh, at this point in your life? Absolutely not. I simply regret that we did not achieve the 32-county republic we fought for. And that was John Crawley. I'm Fiona Sheen, and today's episode of the Indo-Daily was produced by Mary Carroll, researched by Tabitha Monaghan, with sound by Gavin Hennessy. If you enjoy the Indo-Daily, don't forget to like, follow, and leave us a review. <laughs>